optimal minimal. At this altitude, I can run flat out for a half mile before my hands start shaking. Can I ask you a personal question? Now what is it in a broken time? What if I did the opposite? I'm a cybernetic organism, living tissue over a metal endoskeleton. This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. I get asked all the time what I would take if I could only take one supplement. The answer is invariably Athletic Greens. I view it as all-in-one nutritional insurance. I recommended it, in fact, in the four-hour body. This is more than 10 years ago, and I did not get paid to do so. With approximately 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients, you'd be very hard-pressed to find a more nutrient-dense and comprehensive formula on the market. It has multivitamins, multimineral greens complex, probiotics and prebiotics for gut health, an immunity formula, digestive enzymes, adaptogens, and much more. I usually take it once or twice a day just to make sure I've covered my bases if I miss anything I'm not aware of. Of course, I focus on nutrient-dense meals to begin with. That's the basis. But Athletic Greens makes it easy to get a lot of nutrition when whole foods aren't readily available. From travel packets, I always have them in my bag when I'm zipping around. Right now, Athletic Greens is giving my audience a special offer on top of their all-in-one formula, which is a free vitamin D supplement and five free travel packs with your first subscription purchase. Many of us are deficient in vitamin D. I found that true for myself, which is usually produced in our bodies from sun exposure. So adding a vitamin D supplement to your daily routine is a great option for additional immune support. Support your immunity, gut health, and energy by visiting athleticgreens.com TFS. You'll receive up to a year's supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your subscription. Again, that's athleticgreens.com TFS, as in Tim Ferriss show. athleticgreens.com TFS. <sighs> The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Hello, boys and girls. This is Tim Ferriss, and welcome to another episode of The Tim Ferriss Show, where it is my job to deconstruct world-class performers to tease out the habits, routines, favorite books, breakfasts, whatever it might be, that you can test and apply in your own life. The specifics, the details, the beliefs, habits, and so on that you can actually use in the real world. And this episode, we have a fantastic guest I've wanted to connect with for a very long time, Darren Aronofsky. So who is Darren? We're going to get to that in a second. But he was introduced to me by another podcast guest, Peter Atia, who is a medical doctor, an endurance athlete, or he would say former endurance athlete. And I encourage you to also check out his episodes because it'll put a lot in context. And Peter has three episodes. If you just go to tim.blog forward slash Atia, A-T-T-I-A, you will find three of them. They start with Dr. Peter Atia on life extension, drinking, jet fuel, ultra endurance, human foie gras, and more, to the next one, optimizing, investing, blood, hormones, and life, then my life extension pilgrimage to Easter Island. It's a long story, but check it out, tim.blog forward slash Atia. But back to Darren. Darren Aronofsky, you can find him on Twitter and Instagram, at Darren, D 
D-A-R-R-E-N Aronofsky, A-R-O-N-O-F-S-K-Y, to say hello. And he's doing some very cool stuff on Instagram. And DarrenAronofsky.com is the founder and head of the production company Protozoa Pictures. He is the acclaimed and award-winning filmmaker behind cult classics like Pi, Requiem for a Dream, and The Wrestler, which are really just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to his filmography. But going back to the beginning, Pi, his first film, that was 1998, won him early plaudits and a Best Director Award at the Sundance Film Festival. Aronofsky, that's Darren, later directed and produced The Wrestler, which I absolutely loved, and made its world premiere at the Venice Film Festival, which happens to be the oldest film festival in the world, where it became only the third U.S. film in history to win the esteemed Golden Lion Award. Darren later directed the indie box office phenomenon Black Swan, which won Natalie Portman the Academy Award for Best Actress and garnered four other Oscar nominations, including Best Picture. Then, his biblically-inspired epic Noah opened at number one at the box office and grossed more than $362 million worldwide. His latest movie is Mother, with lowercase m and an exclamation point, a psychological horror thriller film starring Jennifer Lawrence, Javier Bardem, Ed Harris, and many others. Michelle Pfeiffer goes on. I've had a chance to see this movie, and I'm stumbling over my words because it's, it's hard to describe. It was uh, mind-bending super intense and i walked around in a dream state for an entire day after seeing this it is I, unlike anything you have ever seen so uh, if you want to strap on your seatbelt and go on a roller coaster i suggest that you check it out so without further ado please enjoy my conversation with darren aronofsky darren sir welcome to the show thank you tim I have been looking forward to meeting you for some time now. Well, thank you. I'm a big fan as well. We have quite a few mutual friends, and yeah. I have some suggestions. I won't mention them by name yet <laughs> as to topics and questions, but I wanted to start with a question about your writing environment. Oh, that's a good question. I've read a little bit about a desk, a very okay. peculiar <laughs> desk. Yeah. Could you describe this desk and if you still use it? It was interesting. I, I know you've spent time in Japan. And so I was in Japan probably promoting, uh, I don't know if it was Pi or Requiem for a Dream. And I went to some spa town south of Tokyo. I can't remember the name of it. And I guess it was the kind of nexus of this place where they make these puzzle boxes. I don't know if you've ever seen them. They're kind of beautiful patterned wooden boxes and you can't really see any hinges or any spaces but if you slide a few panels uh, in a certain order and it could be up to 8 16 32 moves depending on how much money you want to spend eventually it opens and there's a secret compartment and it blew my mind i had never seen any type of souvenir like it i bought a couple and i played with it for a long time and then I think it was early days of internet, so I started to Google a little bit about what it is. There's a whole art form. I won't try to butcher the Japanese uh, word for it, but I then noticed that there were contests worldwide and that there's, there was this one dude who was winning year after year contest, and he was a guy in Colorado. So I was like, oh, that's kind of interesting. And so just randomly, I tracked him down and I sent him an email. His name's Kagan Sound. And I sent him an email. I said, hey, you know, did you ever think of doing any furniture? And he's like, well, actually, I'm working on this thing for a library. And I said, well, it would be interesting maybe to do a desk out of it. And he loved the idea. 
and um then he it was amazing he's a true master i, I may we should probably go over to oh, my house and yeah. check it out i would love to see uh, it david saw it i don't know uh, if he told you about it but he freaked the this hell out is, uh, so david blaine yeah this is this is part of why i'm asking yeah. oh okay cool. but yeah so anyway uh he ended up this this master so the whole thing is made it completely out of wood he doesn't work with any other materials but wood and um I'm not sure the count on puzzles in the desk, but it's, I mean, scores of them. And eventually they all sort of work together to build to a final release where you, it, basically it, he was able to turn it into a musical instrument. He created bellows all controlled with wood and the draws. And by actually pushing the draws, it creates sounds and it has a full octave. And he asked me what song I wanted and it has... He then was able to build a basically a computer, a thing that has switches that are all blown by the bellows. And if they're done in the right order, a panel flaps open in the back with a secret draw. So it took him five years to do it. And it was insane. And I think the price we agreed on was a crime at the beginning. Cause <laughs> a crime it, to him or a crime, a crime to him? <laughs> it was a crime to him. And I felt so, and then I realized I didn't have a chair for it. So then I said, you know, we should make a puzzle chair for it. And, I, and then five and years I, later. And, and I paid through the nose for that to get him back. But um, it's a beautiful thing and it's a great desk. Uh, I want to say I read this in a previous interview that you've referred to yourself as a nomadic writer or writing <laughs> in one place for a few weeks and then moving locations. Yeah. So, how does your writing process differ project to project? Or do you, how do you use, say, the desk that we were just talking about and combine that with shifting yeah. locations? I'm on book deadline right now, so I'm thinking about this. <laughs> and of course, I'll do anything to avoid yeah. writing, including, exactly. in, including interviews. <laughs> exactly. Um, I, I completely understand that procrastination. But, you know, my uh, writing partner, a guy I write with a lot, Ari Handel, once said to me, probably the most important thing I taught to him taught him was that and i didn't do this on purpose is that procrastination is part of the process that actually your brain needs a break every once in a while and not to say to abuse that but to be a little easy on yourself and allow yourself uh, to go to a bookstore to go to a museum to just even if you're serious about your work even when you're not working you're, you are working your brain is putting stuff together and you know inspiration comes from the strangest places as we all know you know you suddenly stumble on something that's exactly what you were looking for when you didn't know you were looking for it. But it's changed my writing process. I used to, what I do was a tremendous amount of prep where we would do a tremendous amount of research and outlines and eventually get to a place where we, we were exhausted with that. And then I would do something called the muscle draft where I would go and disappear somewhere, usually far away where I could be very alone and be very lonely. And that loneliness would inspire me to work hard and fast. And I would muscle out a draft, which meant I would never go back. It would, it was all about just pounding through it to get to the end as quick as possible. And it was like a two, three day process. And you come to, out with like, um, if it, if, if it ended up being a 120 page screenplay, you'd have an eight, 79, 80 page screenplay. But in that muscle draft, there would be moments when you, you know, when you do enter that zone, I don't know if you have a term for it, if you run into it, but there's that zone when you kind of forget time. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, I imagine athletes are doing it and rock musicians seem to be doing it when they, their eyes roll back in their head. But as a writer, every once in a while you get that where, where time disappears and something comes out on the page. And that scene is often something that ends up staying all the way through to the end of the process. 
when you are muscling out that first draft, is it in, are you using screenwriting software? Is it just kind of brain vomiting bullets on into a, a, a word document? What does it look like? It, it, it's, I'm trying to think, I mean, you know, final draft has been around for a long time now and it, it's a great software, um, that I've used. I don't, I don't know if, um, Pi was written on it. It's hard to remember. That was 97. So I can't, I, I doubt it. Probably. I probably was formatting stuff back then. I don't really remember. Um, but you know, that, that just helps you. It helps you work quicker because, you know, instead of dealing with indentation, you press tabs and shortcuts to get through it quicker. I mean, you know, screenwriting is very much like sculpture in the sense that, you know, if you start with a piece of clay, you don't want to just focus on the hand. You know, any artist that does that will tell you, you know, then the hand will be like grossly detailed and enlarged compared to the rest of the body. You kind of just want to slowly start cutting away at the clay to get closer and closer to the final form, you know, but you don't want to get the sandpaper out till you're ready for that like level of detail work. And so it's just about passes. You keep going through it. And once you say, I'm going to start writing, even if you get to page 30 and you think, oh, page five needs something, you just make a note of it and then zap to the end before you ever go back. So it's it's really like working it way, working slowly away at, at that big clay. Do you no longer do the isolation retreats? I do it less and less. I mean, it's a funny story. I was just telling my son, this was when I, when I wrote Pi. Uh, my friend actually who does visual effects for me, um, his parents had a little cabin up outside of Woodstock and I was like, Hey, can I go there for a few days and pound out my muscle draft on pie? And he was like, yeah, sure. And I went up there and, and the, his parents were, uh, intellectuals and just had books and books and books. They were academics. So there was tons of books and then I was, you know, procrastinating, looking through the books. And of course, <laughs> the only book that caught my attention was Carrie, which I had never read. <laughs> so I proceeded to pound through procrastinating by reading Carrie, and scaring the living crap out of myself. <laughs> you know, when you read King, it's just like, wow. And then I really had to write quick because I had to get the hell out of this cabin. So I, I think I wrote the first draft of Pi in like 18 hours. <laughs> wow. But but to talk about now, um, it's funny, this, this, uh, this new movie, Mother, is very, very different process. The, the most different process than I've ever done and probably more similar to where I started. I wrote the script in five days and it was this kind of fever dream when it happened. I, I had had the idea two weeks before and it, you know, it started off with this idea for this allegory with a real kind of relationship drama at the core, but I didn't know how to structure it. And then I had this kind of breakthrough of what the structure is and I had a five day weekend without, uh, my son was with his mom and I was all alone and I just sat in my kitchen. I actually even go up to the desk and I just pounded it out in my kitchen, in my underwear, <laughs> barely eating. It was just like this fever that came out of me in, in five days. And when I was done with the script, I showed it to my producers who didn't know I was even working on something. And they were like, well, wow, I think there's something here. And it's weird. I think I've always been jealous of musicians. You know, you hear the story where Bob Dylan wrote a song in the afternoon and it became, you know, the anthem for a generation. But as filmmakers, we really don't get to do that. It takes us two to five years. I mean, you know, Black Swan 
the first meeting with Natalie was 10 years before I shot it. The wrestler was eight years. The fountain took me six years. Noah was an idea for 20 years. You know, it's a long time. I, I, but I, I was like, is it possible as a filmmaker to take a single emotion and a feeling of, and it's kind of what I was feeling right in that moment and, and try to channel it into a single track and into a movie. And I think that's kind of, it ca kind of captures a single emotion, this film, even though it has other stuff, it really was one color that burst right through. I want to talk about something maybe related to fever dream. So the, the idea of, or con concept of madness, uh, hmm. and, uh, I want to say, I'm certainly paraphrasing that, that maybe you've said that by walking the tightrope between sanity and insanity, you can learn you know, what sanity is or something along those lines. Do you have a fascination with madness? I mean, if so, yeah. Or or why do people have that perception? I had an uncle who um, was uh, schizophrenic, so I grew up around that, and I got to see it um, very, very close, and sort of saw his mindset, and also how it weighed on my family, and you know, the emotional ripples from that were tremendous. Um, and then I also saw how society treated people like that. And, um, so it's, it's something I've been very close to and I've always thought about it. And I remember reading, uh, what was it? The denial of death. Did you ever read that book? No, oh, that's a good one for you. Um, <laughs> but they talk about the liminal, the line, the thin line yes. between the, um, conscious and the subliminal, or I think yeah. how they were using between genius and insanity. And there were things that my uncle would say that, I mean, he was a highly functioning guy. He worked, a, he worked as an engineer for New York city for his entire life and, you know, had a pension and all that, you know, made, made it through, but lived a very tough, tough life because of the illness. But, um, he would say things that were just unbelievable, brilliant. Like I remember one time to, my dad was talking to him about something, you know, about how to do something. I don't remember exactly the details. And he said, well, I can't really say this on radio, right? Oh, you can do it if you want. Oh, you can. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and he said something like, yeah, that's like if you fuck a snake, you get an elephant. And I remember hearing it. I was whatever. I was 12 or 13. But that's kind of a crazy metaphor and kind of beautiful. And it's so extreme, <laughs> you know. It was like the best way of saying, yeah, right. Like you're selling me the Brooklyn Bridge. So, but he had many of those that were just sort of like, that's not proper English and, but it kind of works, you know? Do you, I've always had just a, an absolute fascination with that very thin line. Uh, when I was an undergrad, I was, I'm not a mathematician. I, in fact, part of the reason I went to Princeton is because at the time, at least, did not have a math requirement. I was, <laughs> I was scared uh, off of math by a very uh, belligerent teacher in 10th grade. Oh, that sucks. My, yeah, it was terrible. My brother, in fact, same grade, different teacher, was steered in the opposite direction and Amazing. is finishing a PhD it in statistics. It just shows you what teachers can do. But I was drawn to a few specifically mathematicians at Princeton who were really riding that razor's edge yeah. and had multiple suicide attempts, but were also brilliant beyond yeah. all description. Yeah. I personally, and I, in fact, also have a, a cousin who's schizophrenic, oh. which was relatively later onset mm -hmm. and uh, became effectively a different person, still very smart. Uh, but have you ever worried that you would bleed over that edge? You know, 
luckily my uh, hubris doesn't go that far <laughs> where yeah. I get that worry. I'm not, I'm not the, I'm not crazy hypochondriac and stuff, but yeah, sure. I've, when I was a, um, yeah, I think when I was a teenager and I read somewhere that like it, like schizophrenia is onset can happen in your twenties, you know, that, that idea that when you're a fully formed human being, you suddenly things can change for you. That was a scary idea. Will it happen for me? Um, but you know, I, uh, you know, and I, and I definitely think when it came to, you know, perhaps exploring, you know, plant enhancements, I was always a little terrified that I might go too far in a certain direction, but, um, you know, so, so it, it's always been in the back of my head a little bit just cause you know, a lot of that stuff is genetic, mm -hmm. but I don't think it's really haunted me, but I guess maybe a little bit you, you thought uh, the possibility, the fear of it. Yeah. Well, I, I almost off myself in college. So I went through a very, very dark period, uh, that I actually talked about really publicly in a major way for the first time uh, on stage at TED, which really shut the room down. <laughs> well, no, good for you. Uh, I think it's important. But uh, that is always or has always been kind of in the back of my mind. And one of the things that I got from, uh, as you put it, plant enhancements or <laughs> psychedelic experience was temporarily experiencing what could only be would have to be on some level synonymous with extreme mental illness definitely and a, having a connection and developing more empathy as a result living in a place like san francisco where you're just surrounded by people who are homeless and mentally ill uh, so one of the topics i had down to talk about was psychedelics which was suggested by someone we both know who will remain nameless for now but uh, <laughs> i want to know who that was <laughs> there are only there are only three yeah. but uh what role has that played in your life or how do you think about it as fitting into your life well i look i think it's i i've, I've researched it read a lot about it i think it's very interesting i mean you know um the story of uh of deer in siberia that eat mushrooms and fall over and it doesn't seem like there's any true you know survival of the fittest evolutionary positivity for a deer to make itself that helpless so maybe there is something else going on that some other medicine or something else that this creature is getting out of putting itself at risk was just a fascinating idea and the fact that shamanism and reaching alternative states has been just part of our culture for a super long time and then somehow got completely washed out and I don't know, turn into the sacrament, maybe rock and roll music, but we've really lost, um, you know, anything that's sort of trying to, uh, reach away from scientific reality is, you know, c clearly a loss. And, um, and it seems like, um, you know, th th there's a lot of wisdom to come out of, you know, some exploration in, in a safe type of examination, as long as very controlled environments, it's, there's clearly tremendous benefit, you know, that's happened, you know, for society, you know, over uh, that's recently been discovered and is being rediscovered right now. Yeah. I'm involved with some research at Johns Hopkins and a few other places related to use of psilocybin specifically in, uh, potentially addressing treatment-resistant depression, among other things. Mm -hmm. 
that's what's fascinating all that stuff that maps is doing with mm -hmm. ptsd and the fact Absolutely, that the defense yeah. department is supporting it you know because it seems to be working you know i just saw a film that came out of israel that uh is using mdma to sort of help people deal with not just soldiers but people deal with all different types of emotional distress it's fascinating and it's interesting and um it's um clearly you know if the defense department is sort of supporting it then there there's probably some you know it's probably pretty interesting to them i think it's also a really smart place for research to start or one at least of the subsets of the population that's very smart to work with is returning vets yeah specifically among other reasons because it is a nonpartisan issue it's very hard to be like right. fuck the vets yeah yeah, right? yeah or like screw the terminal cancer patients who want to decrease yeah. end-of-life anxiety it's funny though because another thing i'm involved with is i'm on the board of directors for the sierra club and a big part of what sierra club is trying to do is get vets into nature yeah. Um, and they, we have all these different programs that do that. And in fact, I actually went to the Arctic with two vets and it was amazing for them to sort of, you know, not just to have that experience, which is completely mind expansive to see, you know, nature in a, in a true, to see true wilderness, like what's happening in the Arctic. But, um, I think to the, a lot of them, what they express to me is they actually this is what they were fighting for was to defend this, you know, in their, their spirit. So they actually get to see the beauty of America outside of the cities that they're from. So I want to, I want to continue to talk for a little bit about really old traditions, because what we're talking about, or at least some of these traditions have existed for millennia. Fasting is another one. Yeah. Have you done experiments with fasting? A little bit. It's something I definitely want to get more into. I've been totally into the idea for a long time. Of course, um, you know, I, I fast once a year, uh, not that I'm religious, but because I, I like the spiritual practice of fasting once a day with my buddies. And so I get together with my friends and fast for that one day. But a long term fasting, I think, is fascinating. And I've heard great stories about it, but I haven't I haven't had actually had the. It's amazing how little that goes on in in our privileged lives and how you know, um, that's just a very interesting practice. What, what is interesting about it to you? Because I try to, for instance, I try to do and note to people listening, I'm not a doctor. I don't play one on the internet. <laughs> so don't be stupid. Talk to a qualified medical professional, blah, blah, blah. But I've done, uh, I, I tend to do at least three days of consecutive fasting per month. And then I do oh, longer fantastic. fasts a few times per year. Wow. And you do uh, just water. I will make some allowances, uh, and I, I do it differently at different times, but what I will uh, sometimes do is use fasting as a way to kickstart ketosis. So clicking over into ketosis, certainly uh, our friend Peter, Tia knows a lot about that, he was in ketosis for about two and a half years straight, but yeah. fasting for a period of time, uh, and what I will allow if I'm doing a longer fast in particular is... I will allow myself non-caloric drinks that are unsweetened. So let's say black tea, black coffee. Right. Uh, and Kit Kat bars. And Kit Kat bars. <laughs> Only zero calorie Kit Kat bars. <laughs> and uh, I will also, particularly in the beginning, allow myself uh, some exogenous ketones, so they're just supplemental ketones, or fat like coconut oil to help with the transition. Oh, that's great. That's but great. besides that... Amazing. Nick's... Yeah. 
and the pain is after two, three days, right? It's supposed to from, ease off. Yeah. For most men, women can sometimes take a little longer to click right. over yeah. for most men about two to three days. Right. And, right. and then you can, then you can click over. Um, All right. Well, let's do it. <laughs> I'm in. I'm in. What, what interests you about the fasting? I mean, it, once again, it's just a way, it, it's clearly a way to explore other spaces, mm-hmm. you know, um, I mean, I, I immediately, like for me, if I've got a difficult meeting where I kind of have to be a jerk at, because something's not getting done correctly, you know, if I skip breakfast and uh, do it close to when lunch is, you know, I, I get stuff done. So I do in my own way. I do, mi- I do micro, micro fasting right. <laughs> to control my mood, knowing that, um, you know, some of that um, anxiety and anger will disappear as soon as i eat so it's sometimes a good thing to sort of motivate motivate myself to to help with the work in certain ways so i i do do my own mood enhancement i mean for a long time um you know i was dating someone and you know we used to get at each other and then finally um someone turned me on to the word hangry which is the hungry anger, which i think is probably pretty common now but at the time it was a pretty new word and that was it kind of changed my relationship and kept the relationship going for an extra three four years because we could actually identify why we both became assholes for a little bit so clearly it's a, a major mood um you know blocker and changer and alternator and all that stuff so i think that's interesting and then you know, I've heard and read all about the health benefits of it. And, and then of course there's all the meditative elements of it to control the mind over the body and all, you know, what David Blaine is always demonstrating, um, clearly going to some serious extremes, but, you know, I think there are lessons to be learned and, and experiences to be have, have had during it. So, So this is sort of the nature of my fragmented mind that we're going to jump around a lot, but you, you mentioned, uh, difficult conversations or where you have to be an asshole. Uh, I had read about, well, very, very much in passing, you having a conversation with Mickey Rourke before filming. Uh, <laughs> well, Mickey's there, version. Yeah. The story, yes. Well, no, so I, I actually don't have a whole lot of context, yeah. but, but roughly that you knew it wasn't going to be easy, that he had a lot of strong opinions. So you had sort of a, an honest upfront conversation. Yeah. And I would love to hear how you open a conversation like that or plan for it. You know, I look, um, you know, Mickey at the time, you know, had an awful reputation. Um, and I think that's because, you know, he, you know, I, I, I think he, in many ways he was a lot of his worst enemy because he just, you know, lo- loved acting, but he also loved boxing and, you know, and he had this, fight and struggle between them, which one he was going to focus on. And, you know, I think he, there was, he really respected the box. Anyway, whatever happened with him, you know, everyone was warning me about him, everyone, but I love him and I loved his work. Um, you know, before I knew him, I just, I thought his work was exceptional and I, it was, I felt a crime on the acting arts that he did not have more opportunities to share himself with the world because whenever he has shared himself it was unbelievable from barfly to angel heart to all of that beautiful early work he did and then it just sort of disappeared but i just wanted to be very clear with him because i felt um i just knew how challenging the film we were about to do was going to be and i just i i, I find that the longer i do this the more clear you can be up front the better 
because no matter what happens, it always changes. I think sometimes people don't really hear what you're saying to them a lot because they really want to do something. So I try to be very, very straightforward and clear because I want to get all the as many of the problems off the table because when we do get to set, time is really the biggest enemy or you know foe because it's so short and and it happens so quickly that if you start getting to stupid things that weren't pre-discussed it's a nightmare and so you have to be as completely prepared and professional as you can when you're spending whatever it is twenty thousand dollars a minute or you know whatever <laughs> it may be that day you know you want to you know mike tyson time money time is what i'm talking about you want to be on top of your game so I just went in very clearly with Mickey. And I think, I think what it meant for Mickey for it is like, he, he looked at me like medicine, you know, he knew I tasted really bad, but he knew it was good for him. So, you know, he just closed his eyes and opened his mouth and swallowed to get it done. And, and really to keep, um, because I think he knew deep in his heart that what I was trying to do was, you know, make a great film with him. And, uh, and then, and then he rose to it and he brought it and, and bring it. But, you know, he talks about that meeting, you know, like the little skinny punk coming to him and pointing his little stubby finger in his face, which I love. I, I, it's funny. I wish I was that tough <laughs> and that straightforward. I'm sure I was more cordial and polite to him because I was, I'm, I know I was in awe of him and excited to meet him. Um, but I just wanted to be clear that like, look, you know, if we're going to do this, we're, we're going to do this. Let's roll up our sleeves and go for it. Um, because it's just, for me, filmmaking is so hard. Um, I, I think for a lot of people, there's just so many challenges. It's like, you know, literally every single film I've done has been like its own IPO. It's a, its own corporation. You know, I start off with an idea. I have to attract talent and money to come together. Um, yes, there's a formula, but I generally are making things that don't quite fit into the widget factory. They're a little weird and stuff. <laughs> yeah, so, I, don't, I don't think they fit in the widget yeah, factory. <laughs> so, so we have to, you know, I have to convince people why it's going to be a widget. And then we have to raise the money and hopefully, you know, make it and get the, get the investors' monies back. And, you know, I'm five for six, which isn't bad. But, you know, each time it's, it's a real, it, it, it's a lot of work. So, um, you want to make the whole process of it for all the artists working with you as easy as possible. That's not really where you want to put your fighting. You want to do the fighting for the world and the money and all that. Let's say you're making a new film and you're working with someone who you respect just to depersonalize that a little bit. Although you could give a real example. Let, let's say like Mickey, someone you really admire who has a reputation for being very strong-willed and you're going to have this converse, and you're going to have this conversation again. Yeah. How do you how do you open it? Like, what is the what are some of the phrases that you use right. to prevent it from blowing up or to to try to allow it to go well? Of course, I mean, look, I mean, I'm never I've never done a situation where I'm asking someone, "Hey, we're going to waterboard you for three months." Yeah, you know, I mean, I'm we're trying to do something that's exciting and hopefully beautiful, and you know, you know, striving to make art. So that's the underlining agreement. So you're walking into that conversation. Hey, I dig you. You dig me. Let's try to make this work. But just to be clear, these are some of the things that are going to be going on that will pro probably make you feel uncomfortable. And what would be some examples of those? You know, well, I mean, a lot. A very clear example would be, you know, when working with women, if there's things that, or men, with there's things that are sexual in nature 
you know, what's required nudity wise and all that type of stuff. And you have to talk about that beforehand because of course it's very sensitive material and you want everyone to be comfortable and very clear on why you're doing something. You know, anytime you do like a lovemaking scene, what exactly is it going to be and why? And I've never really, I've never done a lovemaking scene to sort of make it sort of an erotic thing for an audience. I, I always, you know, try to tie it in narratively. So I tell them very clearly where the camera's going to be, what we're going to do, how we're going to run the set, stuff like that. Same thing with violence. You know, violence, I think, is um, just as important in the other way of, you know, what we're going to be, how we're going to be demonstrating violence, how we're going to show it. I mean, for me, that's, that's a huge pet peeve because I, I feel in this country, you know, sexuality and violence has flipped, especially in the movies where you can have as much violence as you want in a PG, PG 13 movie, but you can't have an ounce of sexuality in a PG or PG 13 movie. And that to me is, it's disgusting. I don't have words to, to go beyond that. The fact that we're, you know, training our kids to, fire guns at such a young age with nerf guns and video games it's disgusting and disturbing while you know any form of like saying there's a beauty and human connection physical connection that no we can't talk about that and the fact that the mpaa sort of reinforces that and and that's what i mean you know i mean here i'll go off but like guns and ads I walk down the street when I, my kid was five, six years old and my kid's pointing at huge, crazy, sexy looking machine guns on the biggest movie stars in the world. It's disgusting. They're, the gun companies are getting free ads and, uh, you know, yet you can't show, you know, someone kissing, <laughs> you know. So there's a whole sort of bend with that. I don't know how I got there, but I got That's there. All right. Sorry. I don't know how Feel I get to where I go half the time. I want to talk a little bit about the word catharsis. I recently saw your new film. I really enjoyed the experience and came away. I told you this for for a full day afterwards was in this dreamlike state. Wonderful. Which I savored and I had I had a lot of questions and sometimes I f I feel like we well, actually, Milan Kundera, I think, said that you know pe the the stupidity of man is that he has all the answers, and the intelligence or beauty of a novel is that it has a question for everything. Something like that. Well, that's interesting. I'm paraphrasing, and this is in his uh, book of laughter and forgetting. But at one point, I recall reading that you didn't intend people to have to find catharsis in your movies. You know, they they expect to have happy endings and so on, but that perhaps the catharsis comes the day after <laughs> seeing the film. What do you want the experience of your audience to be or what do you want them to take away from any one of your films? You could give a concrete example or just in general something that it drives you. Well, I mean, I guess I start off with, you know, the first rule of filmmaking is never to bore an audience. Yeah. Um that to me is is the worst feeling and experience when I'm watching a movie and my mind is wandering and maybe looking at the colors splatter across the screen. I think you always want to engage an audience, um, not just visually, not just through sound, but emotionally. So I think that's rule one is just to give people an engaging emotional experience for two hours, whatever your running time is. And then I think uh, on top of that, you can hopefully layer in some ideas so that when people leave the theater, 
it's not like, you know, 15 minutes later, what, what did we watch? You know, I, I don't want to be the McDonald's of movies where the rapper, you know, it's just the rapper is all that's left over. I, I want people <laughs> to be, you know, thinking a bit about and talking about it. For me, one of my best life experiences was just randomly, I walked into a coffee shop and it happened to be around the corner from where Pi was playing in LA at the New Art. And a dad came in with uh, his 18-year-old daughter and two of her friends. And the four of them were sitting there just talking about this black and white movie that they had just seen. And I just kind of eavesdropped, you know, listening to him, just thrilled that there was a conversation and a debate. And what did that mean? And what did that mean? And, you know, for me, that's always been the films I love is, you know, yes, you know, there are movies that you have a great experience in and enjoy. And it's just a great pleasure to watch and a great experience but I also like the ones that, you know, um, you know, make you scratch your head and you think about and you talk and you debate because, uh, you know, you want to kind of have an impact. And I think in today's landscape, a lot of things are disposable and it's really, really quick how disposable they are because of how quick, how much stuff we're being bombarded with day after day after day. Um, it, it's nice to sort of hopefully have something that reflects back on it and thinks about it. You mentioned emotional, I think you said emotional connection or engagement. What are the, what are some of the ingredients that help to create that? Because most films fail. I mean, <laughs> the, I, I think anyway. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, it starts with the greatest, I think the greatest invention of the 20th century that's overlooked, which is the close up. And that, that's the great thing about cinema is the fact that you can stick a camera right in the face of Paul Newman, right in, uh, in those beautiful blue eyes, and you can go right into his soul. And then when you project it months later to an audience or years later, uh, potentially centuries later, you are anonymous in that audience, yet you can feel the empathy. Because in reality, two people talking and hanging out, how much eye contact do you make? There's lots of other things going on in this room that you're taking in, that air conditioner rattling, my guys mixing in the other room. But the actual connection with another human being where you're really looking into their soul and not thinking about yourself. Because the thing is, when I look at you and you look at me, we're thinking a little bit about, wow, now I'm making it really <laughs> uncomfortable us looking at each other and we won't, we're going to be looking away. But in a movie... And via the close-up, you can be unconscious and fully be in Paul Newman's head. Even though you don't know exactly what he's thinking, you can sort of study him and steal and steal that thought. And that's that to me is the great greatness of cinema, um, or one of the great things about cinema. And so, uh, um, and that's where you get emotion, you know. And what happens is if you start linking different emotions together, hopefully you start to tell a story. It's store what the story does is it expands the emotion. Just like a joke, you know, set up, set up, set up, pay off. You know, that's the classic structure of a joke. It's the same thing with drama where you're setting up a character and building a character. You give them a challenge and then you see them go through that challenge and pay off. And then there's always the pitfall when it all falls apart and then they rise up. And that hero's journey, you know, is just so I don't know if it's genetic. I don't know if it's part of the human condition. I don't know if it's something that we're we're taught very, very young in our first Dr. Seuss books. Um, but it's something that we all around the planet in every language, in every culture can relate to. I mean, for me, the power of storytelling happened. I was, um, I graduated high school early and backpacked around Europe and the Middle East. And uh, I ended up in the, the Gemma in um, 
Marrakesh. I don't know if you've been there, but I it's a, it's an amazing square in the middle of the, the Sook, you know, where they're all, um, where they have all the shops and stuff. And, uh, at nighttime, they ha it's filled with snake charmers and food and all this stuff. And there was one old guy leaning on a cane and a beard telling a story. And it, he had a huge crowd around him and it was all in Arabic. And I didn't understand the freaking word, but I was mesmerized. And I was like, that's what I want to do. I want to tell stories because that little old shriveled old guy on a cane was transforming himself into this 20 foot beast. And I didn't even understand the language. And I was like, that's cool, you know, to entertain a crowd with a point of view. Where was that experience relative to your time in Kenya? That was after Kenya. I'm also on the board of directors for an organization called the School for Field Studies, which is a great organization out of Salem, Massachusetts, which basically trains mostly college students uh, to go abroad and uh, into sensitive environmental areas and do environmental studies. And when I was a I don't know, a young teenager. I worked at the New York City Aquarium in Coney Island, which was right next to my neighborhood in Brooklyn. And the, one of the big perks of that job, besides being at the aquarium, was that if you wore the aquarium t-shirt, you got to go on the cyclone roller coaster over and over again. Um, so we used to go 40, 50 times in a row on the cyclone, <laughs> you know. And um, But I picked up a book for the School for Field Studies there, and they, it was just this little color catalog. And I was like, wow, they send kids to Kenya. And I was like, ma, this is what I want to do. Dad, you know. And somehow they took a few high school students. And I was, I was like an advanced uh, biology. So I had a little bit. I was always good in science. My dad is a, was a science teacher. So I was always pointed in that direction a bit. And so I got them to let me go to Kenya where I, um, I did, uh, what I study? I studied thermo, thermo regulate. No, I studied um, water strategies and ungulates. The next year I went to Alaska with them to Prince William Sound, actually where that big Exxon spill was. But I was there two years before that, which was fascinating because the research we did there, actually they used that research after the, after the spill to see what the impact was. But in Alaska, I studied thermoregulation and harbor seals. I just like to say these words because they're fancy sounding so yeah ungulates now <laughs> ungulates. tell us what fall into the class of ungulates are there all any? animals that's, that stand on their hooves got it so everything from cattle you know domesticated cattle to zebra gazelle um, deer wildebeest elk, you know. yeah there, there were no deer or elk it, I, there might have been some elk and some type of elk there but um yeah, yeah. so it's all that's, that's true of, right i guess there would be it, caribou in alaska it was interesting right. we basically were there we were on this. We were on this ranch owned by an Africana who wanted to. He did this thing called preservation for profit. Was his idea, where basically he was like, "Look, during a drought, all the cattle die, but indigenous animals, of course, don't die because they basically forage in the morning when there's dew on the leaves, and then the mid afternoon they're in the shade." So basically what we were there to do is to prove his idea that indigenous animals were better adapted to the environment than domesticated animals, which is completely obvious, but in science you have to sort of prove it. So we studied them morphologically, uh, which was biologically when they, and then we also looked at them and their behavior patterns during the day. 
And I mean, it was, it was fascinating because basically we just used this, you know, I learned the scientific method and we did real serious research and real charting and real, you know, and, and it, the next year was Alaska when I went to Prince William Sound. And the beauty of that was the textbook. The only textbook we had was Origin of Species. And each, every two days we had to read another chapter of Origin of Species and discuss it. And over the six, seven weeks I was out in the bush, that was the whole, the whole class. I had read that uh, your time, I suppose, acting as a field biologist or doing field biology in Kenya changed how you looked at the world. Now, I don't want to put words in your mouth, so I don't know if that's accurate or not. But if that is true, yeah. how did it change how you looked at things? Everything changes your life all the time. Right. But back at that age, when you're 16 and you're a Brooklyn kid from New York City who's basically, you know, you know, a concrete jungle flea, and you're suddenly in, you know, the savannah of Kenya, of course, it's going to change your life. So it's, it's a little bit of an overstatement, I think. But um, I mean, every day was mind blowing. I, as an embarrassing moment, I was 16. So you have to forgive me. I got off the plane and I was riding with the professors to the thing. I was like, oh, when are we going to see tigers? And they're like, there aren't any tigers in Africa. They're in Asia. And I was like, oh. Okay. So that, that's, know, what, that's what I meant. That's what I <laughs> so, I, you know, a kid from Brooklyn, no idea what was going on. So, I mean, every day it was just, uh, every day literally was something I had never seen before. And then in Alaska, and you know, this is a pre-Google, pre crazy media age, you know, still only 11 channels on the station. A couple of people had cable, but early days of civilization. And, um, I remember we were kayaking. It was an amazing trip. It was like five weeks in kayaks out in Prince William sound, one of the most untouched places on the planet at that point until Exxon showed up. And, we we were going to this glacier and i had never seen a glacier now everyone's seen a glacier at this point because of that the calving ice and what's happening to the glaciers but the idea of blue ice for a kid from brooklyn when i ended like um this chenega glacier when the first time i saw it it was like two miles long you know half a mile tall i mean i just with huge chunks of ice falling and you'd see the chunks fall off and then a minute later, you'd hear the sound because of the distance, like at a ballpark. And then these huge waves from that start coming at you. And you're in a kayak, so you're really close to the water. And on those waves are icebergs with seals hauled out, regulating their temperature on it, going up and down. I mean, just <laughs> like, who needs psychedelics? <laughs> You've been called controversial. Uh, I don't know if you view yourself that way. Um, but I'd love to talk a little bit about how to respond to public perception and criticism. Another mutual friend of ours, Rick Rubin, fantastic guy, uh, incredible music producer, uh, among other greatest. Things. Yeah, he, he has said on this podcast. He said the best, the best art. I'm paraphrasing, but the best art divides the audience, mm. and so I think it was. Uh, help me out here. I think it was Variety. The day after you got a 30-minute standing ovation, said you should quit filmmaking and go to therapy <laughs> instead. And uh, you've had, as anybody who's in the public arena, uh, has a, a, a fair amount of, say, criticism of various types. Yeah. What would your advice be to a filmmaker you think is very promising, who's doing something that is not 
that doesn't fit cleanly in the widget factory. Yeah. They're probably going to catch fire, but they haven't had the experience. What would you say to a person? That's like an that? easy answer. Keep going. You know, that's what you want. I mean, I when I meet, uh, when I teach, I like my both my parents were teachers, and so I, I, it's in the blood, and I love teaching. You know, the thing I try to instill in students is like the only thing you have to offer is you. You know, your individual stories, your individual perception, your individual humanity, and figuring out a way to communicate that humanity. To, the, to humanity at large. I mean, that's the beauty of cinema, once again, that you can have a six-year-old Iranian girl or a 90-year-old British gentleman, and you can have an equal emotional experience if the filmmaker does their job right to it. So, like, for me, it would be, you know, a ballerina and a wrestler. Hopefully, can I make you feel their blood and their pain? That's that's the goal. Um, because that's, you know... that. That's one of the great things cinema does is to bring us into other human experiences. So if you're if it's truthful to who you are and you're concerned about how people are going to react to it, you know, stick up your middle finger and charge straight into that fire. You have to. Um, if you're trying to be a provocateur just to be a provocateur, you know, go F yourself. You know, that to me is that's the bad stuff is like when it's not real. Um so for me, it's not, it's never like, oh shit, how do I, you know, mess around with people? That's not why I make movies at all. I, I'm just juiced about these ideas and, um, they have, they have nothing about being confrontational, but even when I do a film, like, you know, you know, the fountain's been called the love poem to death. I, I piss people off, even though it's just really gentle move, romantic movie about a guy coming to terms with dying. I guess that's just not a very commercial idea in the West. But, you know, I, I, I thought it was at the time. And I was like, you know, dancing around for five years telling studios I was going to that people would be interested in the movie because I really believed it. I wasn't I'm not interested. You know, I happen to be a f filmmaker who wants to talk to audiences. I, I love it. I love when they respond. Unfortunately, I, I haven't done a comedy or something that's easy quite yet. Easier to connect with an audience, not easier to make by any means. I just mean. You know, when you're going to, when you're aiming to please an audience, it's a lot easier to make it than when you're just making something that you feel inside. And for me, I, it's not a conscious thing. It's purely from my gut. That's the core for me. It, it comes from my stomach always. It's not the heart. It's mostly, or it might be somewhere between, I don't know what's right here. Solar plexus? It's right beneath the solar plexus. It's kind of the stomach, I guess. Yeah, it's like your large intestine. <laughs> <laughs> oh, great. No, I don't know. No, yeah, it would be like diaphragm. Solar plexus. It's basically diaphragm. there. It's that, that area. I, I, when I feel, when I'm writing and it's like coming out of there, I know it's like it's some type of chi energy from there. So, do you pay a lot of attention to your kinesthetic? response to what you're doing when you're writing i mean you feel it's that unconscious state where you're not feeling body that's the that's the state to get into where it's just coming out of you you know and and that that it's not by by no means is that often you know i i believe there are writers out there um i was very I, I know some real writers and I think they get, are, get into that state a lot easier. And but I'm not a real writer, but sometimes I have ideas that I want to get out and express. And so I, I try to do it. Why do you say you're not a real writer? I, don't I mean, there are people who would argue you have writing credits. That yeah, you yeah, are a writer. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I just, I guess I, I, I'm in awe of, I, I have, I have some friends that really write and I see the way they can put words together. I don't, you know, look, 
the reality, I, I, I'm being more truthful with Ferris than I've been with probably anyone. The reality is I was a public school kid from Brooklyn and I, they never really taught me how to write. And when I got to college, I went into the creative writing class and I almost flunked out of it because I really did not know how to write an essay. I didn't even, I, I, to this day, my, my son, my 11 year old son knows more about pronouns and nouns and sentence structure. I just never learned grammar. It was never taught to me. And, and then, and it was a shame. I just never, I never did the Romeo. So I probably have some type of insecurity about that. Cause I don't think I could write that. I can write dialogue cause I have an ear and, and I, and I do have some ideas that I can try to sketch out, but I don't really, um, you know, I guess I'm scared of, I'm scared you're going to give me an essay to write because that's going to be a challenging one. <laughs> I'm going to be the last person to give you an essay to write. My, my uh, writing my senior thesis in college, which is mandatory, and it, it constitutes a huge part of your departmental grade for the entire time that you were at school, yeah. traumatized me so much <laughs> that I pledged to myself when I graduated, I would never write anything longer than an email ever again. Clearly, Amazing. it did not work out. Uh, yeah. It worked out, but it didn't work out as planned, I guess. What another... was your thesis on? My thesis was on the phonetic and semantic acquisition of Chinese characters in the Japanese language called kanji by native English speakers. Uh-huh. So how do native English speakers most effectively acquire both the meaning and pronunciation of Chinese characters. Um, unbelievable. Yeah. In <laughs> retrospect... Seem, it doesn't seem like someone who's afraid of writing <laughs> would write something like that. That's pretty... Uh, you know, I had, I had... A lot of my true interests were buried in some of these early writing projects or even scientific assignments right. uh, that I then felt were trivial or not serious for some reason. And now I'm coming back to them 20 years later. Amazing. I mean, Amazing. I, I remember I took a neuroscience class. Uh, initially, the plan was to be a, a neuroscience major. I actually was a psychology major focusing on neuroscience mm. for a host of reasons moved to the language acquisition. Namely, principally, I couldn't do the animal testing that was right. required to be part of the lab I wanted to be part of. Oh, good not, for you. Yeah, I mean, I, I will say, I mean, I understand uh, the, the sensitivity of the subject. I do think some studies are very difficult to do or impossible to do without certain animal modeling. But let me just say that, for instance, one of the studies I... I've been deep into this. No, I, I know you are. I, I, oh, I know you are. No, I know you are. I know you are. I don't want to... No, not for environmental reasons. Just I, I... Oh, for sure. I have a... Well, we'll talk about it later. No, we can talk... Yeah, we can definitely talk about it. The... But where I became, I was really fascinated by REM sleep uh-huh. and some of the the physiological similarities to states that can be induced with hallucinogens. Oh wow! And so this was probably my sophomore year in college that I was really fascinated by this, and it only took twenty years, twenty five years to come back to it full circle. Did you ever try to stay awake for a long time? I Did stayed you- awake. And this is not advisable at all. <laughs> I, I wanted to see. I love what, the disclaimers. Well, you know, because the, I every once in a while I get an email from somebody yeah, like exactly. my cousin tried what you said, <laughs> and he gave himself a headache. And I'm like, yeah, you got to use your common sense, people. But uh, I stayed away for six days. Oh wow! I wanted to see what would happen because I had read these reports of people having all sorts of odd phenomena yeah. crop up when you stay awake for that period of time. And uh, so I used a stimulants, nothing illegal, right. but was very good at concocting, putting together these cocktails for myself and stayed awake for 
six days. Five and a half, six days. I stopped because I was walking on campus. I remember very clearly where I was. I was, I was. <laughs> and you were naked. No, 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 no. I was naked. And there were goblins everywhere. Exactly. Uh, no, I fell asleep while I was oh, walking oh, and Jesus. woke up about a block later. Oh, wow. And I had crossed two or three Oh, wow. And I was like, you know what? This is no longer a good idea. But you have you stayed awake for a really long period of time? No, no. I had a um, there was a test when I was in undergrad, uh, and my roommate did it where he basically was to stay awake, and he just became cruel. And I remember him telling me like they they were like uh, he's like I'm gonna go to sleep. They're like don't go to sleep. So he took a deck of cards and started throwing cards around the room and made everyone run around and pick them up. Otherwise, he would go to sleep. So he started doing like really messing with the aides and the and the grad students that were doing the studies on him. Yeah, but. Of course, the overnighter and those are important, not just, you know, when you're in college and stuff, but I haven't, I'm, I'm glad you, you are out there exploring it for us. <laughs> yeah, I don't, the, the conclusion is don't do that. Yeah. <laughs> the conclusion is don't do that. And if you remove sleep and food from people, they get really, really grumpy. It turns out, uh, this is a quote from New York magazine. This may have been from a while ago. Uh, although I don't think it's that old actually. So. I think when I was starting out as a filmmaker, I had tremendous focus, but I don't think I robbed myself of too much life. I'm still friends with the guys I grew up with in nursery school. I have a great relationship with my family. I'm definitely attracted to balanced symmetry. I'm definitely an ordered personality, but I'm a lot less ordered than I was. God damn, I said some stupid shit. (laughs) (laughs) So you can definitely deny, you can correct, you can set the record straight. But this is of incredible interest to me because many people who would aspire to be creative or who self-describe as creative burn themselves out or they they sacrifice family relationships by being singularly focused and sometimes they're proud of it sometimes they regret it yeah but this is this is something that i don't hear very often yeah so i was wondering if you could just elaborate on that because how do you have how do you have the tremendous focus required to do what you've done while still right. having that balance and symmetry. I mean, it, it, it is a balancing act and, you know, uh, but I think all the time you put into life, you know, into family and into friends and into activities outside of the work you know, back to our procrastinate, not to say hanging out with your family is procrastination, but bringing in those other experiences into your life is what makes you be able to relate to people and to communicate. And at least for filmmaking, that's a major part is, you know, going to a diner with friends and seeing an argument between some strangers over there ends up in a movie for me, you know, living life and seeing stuff and doing all different types of experiences through this planet is important to be a storyteller because it's all about the stories. I mean, I think the first three, four films of my career and definitely all my short films before that all came out of very personal experiences of my life. And, And the problem is if you keep working nonstop and you're originating your material. I think it's different if you're more of a journeyman who's going along and then just taking your craft and bringing it to life, bringing a great script to life. Because What, think, do, you, what I think, do you mean by that as a journeyman? Well, something that's not a personal story uh, by nature. I mean, I think every story's 
personal or you can find a personal way because anytime you portray a character on screen, you should sort of infuse them with real emotions and stuff. So and to do that, you have to feel it yourself. But um, if you're drawing on your own life and your own stories and you're somehow more autobiographical somehow, even through metaphor, because I think all my films are not about, I'm not a ballerina yet, you know, there's a lot of Natalie in me. I mean, that character, Nina, in me. Not Natalie, but Nina, the character. I'm not a wrestler, but Randy the Ram, I, I'm pretty connected to, and I understand why he makes every decision. And some of those stories in there I can relate to or are drawn from my own life. So I think, you know, if it's an assignment where you don't really, you're just showing up as a director and you're there to you know, make all the departments work together and make the actors do it. I think it's, it, it becomes, it becomes more of a craft then not to say that it's not an art, but I think if you're trying to create your own stories that are coming out of life, you have to actually live life to do it, you know, right. otherwise you're just getting your stories. I don't know where you could get your stories from. I guess you can make things about being an obsessive film, which is kind of like, you know, one of my favorite filmmakers, Fellini started making films about directors making films, you know, <laughs> or, or adaptation, you know? Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, eventually he went off into other things, but for a while that's what he yeah. worked on. And so I think you, you have to balance in this, in this art form. It's, it's very different. I think uh, in different forms because other forms, uh, can be expressed in different ways. So I, I can't really speak for that, but, uh, but storytelling, you need stories. Reminds me of something I was told at one point, which helped me at least, which was a friend of mine, a writer, I think it was, it might've been, it was either Debbie Millman, I want to say, or Maria Popova. And they said, uh, if art imitates life, you have to have a life. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, and I guess my follow-up question is when you are really immersed in a project yeah, and maybe, maybe now with family and so on, it's different than in the early days, but my experience and part of the risk I have when I go into a project is that it tends to crowd out other things. Right. Do you schedule say time with friends and family so that they don't get displaced? How do you ensure that that, happens or are you just programmed in such a way that it's natural it's not a bad life as a filmmaker because it, basically at least the way my my schedule is i do a, a film every two three years so in that two three years there'll be like a 50 60 day run which will be completely selfish and completely committed and dedicated to the film where i'm working 18 20 hour days over and over again, insane amount of time. And, you know, you get one day off on the weekend and then the next day you're probably prepping. Um, although I'm able now to almost get two days off because I've been doing it enough that I kind of have more skills that I can go in. So I can get a weekend off sometimes, but w where I can spend with family um, and friends, not that I could go out and party and have a beer. I mean, it's got to be very mellow. Most of the time, I'll just want to watch Game of Thrones. But that's a huge marathon that only happens once every two, three years. And then you get into editing, and it's basically a nine-to-five job. You know, there's always things coming up, but it's a much slower pace. And that could be a 40-week process. Then you get to selling the film, which is kind of a two, three-week kind of marathon of travel. But it's kind of fun because that's where a lot of stories come from because you see all these different cultures and you just see a lot of crazy shit. 
So it's not that bad. And then, and then I get into development. And when I'm in development for the next project, it's once again, I can really shape that around uh, my son's schedule and, and, and I can have time to see my friends and have experiences and travel and stuff like that. Because when you're developing, it's all virtual, virtual in your head, not quite in a computer, but it's, it's all in your imagination for a while. Mm-hmm. And all you need is a notepad and a pen and you could be anywhere. Are there any particular resources? And I'm sure this is a question you've had a lot, so I apologize in advance, but I haven't heard the answer. So to aspiring filmmakers, uh, let's just assume intelligent, driven, organized. So big right. assumption, but let's just assume they check those three boxes. Sure. Are there any particular books or resources or approaches that you would suggest they take? Assuming that they're, they want to put together uh, some type of narrative storytelling. So yeah. they're not doing a document. Yeah, yeah. Necessarily. Uh, I always push The Writer's Journey by Christopher Vogler. It's very good, but it's only for people who are writing screenplays. So, but he, but he's great. He basically took Joseph Campbell's work and turned it into screenplay language, and he did a really good job at it. And we're totally part of his cult because uh, we, I, I believe in that hero's journey. Uh, as, and not to say that's the end all to end all, and there are other ways to approach it, but it's a very very interesting structure that can really lead to big breakthroughs when you're struggling. You can look at the different archetypes that there are and and often you find yourself falling into it. And, and you know, it's funny, like Requiem for a Dream, when I was working on it, I, I it was before I read Vogler, but now that I look back, I, I, I still, I was doing stuff similar where I was charting out where their emotion was, the characters. And what was interesting is that the graph was actually upside down when something good was supposed to happen, something bad was happening. And I was looking at it and one day I flipped it over and I said, oh, they're actually the bad guys, all my characters. The good guy is addiction. And this is actually a hero's journey of addiction overcoming the human spirit. <laughs> and that's when I wow. finally understood what the movie was about. And charting it and using hero's journey is how I was able to figure out that, that idea out that this invisible monster, was, uh, this craving was actually the hero of the film. But um, that's great. I mean... And then the other thing back on what we talked about is, you know, tell, tell your story. Don't try to figure out what people want because the reality is, you know, and I kind of learned this when I, when I was coming out of film school, I went to support my friend, Scott Silver, who's a big screenwriter now who had made a, directed a film that was at Sundance and it was the year that uh, Welcome to Dollhouse was there and a bunch of other indie gems. And I remember watching these films go, these are such specific, unique movies, but they're done exquisitely well. And what Sundance allowed me to believe and what independent film has allowed so many dreamers to believe is that if you make a film well, no matter how personal it is, if it's truthful, you'll find an audience. So not, not to invoke the name of, of Rick again, but I was having a conversation with, with Rick recently in a barrel sauna that is the exact replica of his barrel sauna. (laughs) And we were talking about this deadline that I continually, uh, I'm actually working hard on the book, but I, I I spent a lot of time talking. I I spent a lot of time talking about how hard I'm working on the book. And, uh, I was asking him some questions about working with musicians and, whether he knows if something has hit the mark or not. And uh, I'm going to paraphrase here, but he, he said effectively, great is always better than now. And, oh, that's interesting. And 
and then the way I interpreted that was, you know, there's always a good time for great. There's never a good time for mediocre. So if you feel like you're yeah. rushed to hit some kind of deadline, obviously there are realities of production and so on. Don't get me wrong, yeah. but uh, yeah, you can't rush. You can't rush. That, that's you know, I mean, Rick's filled of wisdom. <laughs> yeah, and it always comes out so interesting. Um, but yeah, I, I I get that. It's you can't force it. The thread I want to tease a little bit is something you mentioned earlier, which is, uh, say, the argument between the strangers that in the diner that then makes it into your movie. Right. Could you tell us, or tell me, since I'm just sitting right here, uh, yeah. about your, your history with the game of Go? I got into it a lot when I was doing Pi. Uh, I needed a game for the two guys to be playing so that they had some reason that they were meeting so that Max and his mentor could meet and i just thought playing chess was just we've seen it so much and it's cliche and mathematicians playing chess was just not quite interesting enough and at that point 97 go was still very much a fringe game sort of is still and um but i think it was much more fringe then and we used to go a lot to the the new york go chapter um meetings which were like 18 very intellectual people and very book line departments at different houses each week playing go so it was a great cast of characters just to find and they, they you know the best thing about go character go characters are the ones that have said that blow off chess as like a fool's game <laughs> you know they they so look down on chess and it's just <laughs> such a chip on their shoulder that they've they've graduated to go but that you know another thing that's fascinating that i've been hearing a lot of people i think actually rick was talking to me about it that's where i heard it was well he's the one who suggested i ask you <laughs> oh, the, oh there you go but the documentary which i haven't seen yet he told me there's some documentary about what it meant this computer finally beating these go masters wow. and he was telling me about a scene where after the first move the go master gets up and like walks away because basically i guess the point was that it's such a radical way to change of how the game is played how this computer is playing it that it's actually affecting now how humans play each other when that's that's a line about ai that is interesting where you know, it, it actually changes the way we act with each other after thousands of years of playing a game a certain way. Suddenly this idea comes that is a moment of genius that changes the way we look at the board. That was interesting idea. And is that from a, do that's from a documentary? I believe so, but you have to ask Rick. I'll was, ask Rick. Uh, because it fascinated me and I, I was, I've been thinking about it for, for since. So that, yeah, I, I don't want to take us totally off the rails, but Do you I've, play Go? Uh, I have a go board at my house. I'm yes. not good. Yeah. Uh, I tend to play a highbrow version of Connect Four, which is Connect Five. <laughs> I, my brother and I love to play. We just call it Connect Five or something like that, <laughs> where we use a go board, and it seems really childish. But my brother's—I mean, he's—he's he's a statistics PhD, very good chess player. Oh wow! And these games can actually last a really, really long. So it's time. just basically getting five in a row, and you could place them anywhere on the board. Sounds great. Yeah, it's a yeah, great and game. it can it can take. You don't a flip long tiles time. or anything. It's just about blocking. That's right. Each other. You just you leave them there, so you're not capturing. Well, you are capturing territory, but the rules are completely different from real go. Yeah, my my son came home from math class with that on paper, and we played it for a while, and I was like, wow, this is a complicated game. It's super complicated. Yeah. and go is so fascinating on many many levels one of which is you can feel like you're winning and then effectively if you if your pattern recognition is off 
in a handful of moves completely lose. I mean, it's it, the, the tide can turn a lot faster. Uh, I shouldn't say this with any degree of uh, <laughs> credibility because I know people like Josh Waitzkin are actually good at chess. I'm not, but yeah. uh, the the game I got really into uh, in Japan. So my first trip abroad was a year in Japan as an exchange student at a Japanese school, lived yeah. with the Japanese family. And I, I, I listened to the session you did with the knife maker. Oh yeah, Murray Carter. Yeah, oh, great. Murray's yeah. amazing. So I want to get some of his knives. Oh, actually. the knives are incredible. You uh, they, should. They're uh, so good. Uh, the Muteki line. Oh, his stuff is amazing. Yeah. So the game I got into was called uh, Shogi. So Shogi is Japanese chess. Oh wow. And what makes Japanese chess different, and there are ways you can play Western chess this this way, but you're able to reuse the captured pieces oh, interesting. and just drop them on the board uh, at different places. And then also, not only do pawns get promoted, there are multiple pieces that turn into completely different, different pieces. Oh, very cool. When they get so to the Pokemon point. of chess. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's really a cool game. Yeah. And so there's, uh, I used to buy these books in Japan. Tsume Shogi. Tsume Shogi is a basically books that allow you to it's like think of a really slow app it's a book where you you try to figure out the three or four moves in a given position necessary to win the game and then there's an answer key and so i would on the subway because you have a lot of time on the subway in tokyo at least i did i would either read comic books or i would look at these sumi shogi or i would read judo textbooks uh but i'm I'm getting judo yeah um as an aside it's funny one i it was very upsetting when they got um, Wi-Fi on the uh, New York City subway because now I have to work hard. But like my rule is never take out your phone, not because I'm worried about getting stolen or anything, but just because that's the chance to watch people for me. Uh-huh. And um, so you don't want to get lost in your device at that point. It's a, that's the great time. And the, and the rule in New York is great. You know, Basically, you can stare at anyone you want. If they make eye contact with you, you can never look at them again, but you're allowed to look as long as they don't look at you. And that's that people come to New York. I said, that's the rule. You can, you can watch and check each other out, but if they need, realize you're being checked out, stop. So I, I, I find it fascinating. And I, I imagine, uh, yeah, the subways in Japan must be insane. It's just, you know, yeah. once again, you know, well, but, what, what shocked me about, I mean, there's so many things that are so alien about Japan for someone who hasn't been exposed. Yeah to Japan specifically, even in East Asia, and I've spent time in China, I've gone to school there, I've spent time in Taiwan, I've spent time in Japan. Japan and within Japan, Tokyo is just a particularly, a particular brand of weird. And so you get on the subway and I remember a couple of things really striking me, because I'm 15, everything's backwards, right? We're driving on the opposite side of the street. Like we have to take a shower before we get into the bath. And like all these rules that seem very Alice in Wonderland, topsy-turvy. Yeah. And then I sit down on the subway and you'll see, you know, these salarymen, salarymen, who are on their way to work, these worker bees, and they're reading comic books with the most explicit oh, porn yeah. imaginable. <laughs> and they're completely Alien nonchalant porn. about it. Yeah. I mean, tentacle porn, who knows? And then the, uh, the other hilarious phenomenon I bumped into, which I really didn't expect. So you hear about in Japan, perverts on the subways and they're definitely <laughs> perverts on the subways and they're called chikang. So if you're like chikang, chikang, that means a pervert, pervert, pervert. Oh, really? And so if like some guy is trying to fondle some girl's ass, like you'll hear, hear chikang and then you know, there's a big the kerfuffle. <laughs> what they don't tell you is that uh, remember one day I was you in just my put st- chikan and kerfuffle in one <laughs> sentence, just so you know, might be the first time. <laughs> uh, the singularity is near yeah. and 
uh, I was in my school uniform, 15, clearly a high school student, right. have my Judy uniform over my shoulder, it's wrapped up, and uh, I'm standing up, it was a packed subway, and I, fear, I feel someone groping my ass. Oh, wow. And I'm like, what is going on here? I can't turn around, because it's, it's so, so crowded. crowded. Oh, yeah. jeez. And eventually I'm able to turn around, and what do I see? Not what I expect, I see two really old women with like half of their teeth with Captain Gold chuckling to themselves because they'd been grabbing my ass. <laughs> and these women are called Obataryang. So Obataryang is from Old Battalion, which it's a long story, but it refers to like older Japanese women who just don't give a fuck anymore. <laughs> and so, yeah, it was my, a real cultural my, experience. My, my favorite, you know, when I went to Japan for the first time, which was with Pi, you know, I was I was a big, huge fan of. Um, I, I had all, I dreamt for so long to go to Tokyo, um, and I was like, you know, I kind of I, I want kind of want to make a statement here. I kind of you know I want to be remembered. You know, I'm coming with this little film. What can I do? So I dyed my hair purple, and I came and I doing interviews the whole time with big bright purple hair, and no one mentions it. And I get to my last interview and it's kind of a young hip guy who's like a pop star in Japan and we become buddies. And I'm like, man, you know, like I've made my hair purple, but no one's commented on it. And he goes, here, come to the window. And we look outside and it's a major intersection. He says, who has purple hair out there? All the old ladies dye their hair purple. <laughs> That's true. And I'm like, oh, oops. <laughs> That's totally true. 100% accurate. Oh, my God. I didn't even piece it together. No, that's true. I'm having flashbacks. I think the old ladies are grabbing my hair. It's like, you know, hair. in Requiem for a Dream, they dyed their hair red and, and out there it's purple. So, very funny. Uh, so, speaking of tentacle porn. Uh, this is that's about as graceful a segue as I can make, and we we don't have to talk about this if you don't want to. But this is one of the bullets that was recommended for me to talk to you about, and I should preface this by saying in my second book, Four Hour Body, there are two chapters on female orgasm, two on various aspects of male sexuality. So I'm not shy about talking about this. But suddenly I'm on the Howard Stern show. Suddenly you're on the Howard Stern show, <laughs> restricting ejaculation. I don't have any context for this, but I was told to ask you about restricting ejaculation. Wow, where'd you get that from? <laughs> My sources cannot be named. Uh, but is that something that you can tell us about? Um, I'm not sure what you're referencing. <laughs> oh, oh, I think, oh, there we go. I, it's coming back to me. Oh, there, it was funny. I had a, I had a um, well, there's in, in uh, Requiem for a Dream, there's something in the background called Month of Fury. Um, which was, I guess it was early self-help. Um, I had, a I, when I, wow, this is going way back and actually kind of flows a little bit into probably why, um, we're, we're a growing friendship is happening here because, uh, <laughs> similar roots in a certain way. But when I, my first, when I was in film school and th there's another great thing for young film students to know is like, there's usually the first screenplay you write that will never get made. And believe me, that happens. And and at a certain point, you have to be take the bold step to abandon it, you know, because there's a learning process in that first script. And I worked on a script that was set in Coney Island. And I had a guy, a really talented kid I grew up with, who probably if he went to Wall Street would be a, 
you know, a hundred millionaire type of guy, but he ended up getting involved in this kind of culty organization that are, are those guys who go around and sell roses and little toys around the streets wearing ties. I don't know if you ever see them. They're a lot on the West coast and they, they're basically kind of pyramid schemes where you basically open up an office and you hire like 10, 20 year old kids and they go and they hustle for you. And then you buy it from a guy above you. And then if you get a few, you slowly move up this type of thing. And they have these huge conventions in Vegas with where they all come together and they have all these chants where they juice each other up and get all excited. And I, at, when I was in film school, he was in the uh, West coast area. And so I just sort of studied it and hung out with him. And once again, here's another play hang out with a friend but also kind of get stories so i developed this whole kind of characters and world for this movie about this and eventually i didn't make that film but i was able to take that character and and when i had to bring hubert selby jr's requiem for a dream alive sarah goldfarb the old lady watched a lot of tv but we couldn't afford the tv to put tv on the channel so i decided to make my own tv show and create and create kind of a Tony Robbins-esque, because Tony was just starting and it was, he, he didn't sort of evolve into the kind of figure he is now. At the time, he was sort of a tele No one really knew what it was and it was, it was odd. So I kind of created my own sort of version of that and had this guy on TV and I had to give him a philosophy. So I had an actor friend who was also a boxer and he had this thing called Month of Fury, Eddie DeHarp is his name. And it was three rules, which are actually three great rules. It was 30 days, uh, no refined sugar, 30 days, no red meat, and 30 days, no orgasm. <laughs> now, are those all together? Or yeah, you do three? all three for a month, for 30 yeah. days. And it was actually a very interesting, you know, so so he preached it to me because he would do it before he would box or so one before more he would act. No refined sugar. No refined sugar. So that's everything like toothpaste, anywhere where there could be sugar, you know, no red meat and then no orgasm. So in the movie Requiem for a Dream, the third one is not actually pitched because uh, i just thought it would be good as a little secret now i'm, I'm sort of giving it away it, although it's come out of it oh, it's it's actually in there it's actually in there a bit it's an easter egg that's hidden in the film somewhere it was funny because when um you know when we started working on it i suggested to the actors that they should go on a month of fury before we make the movie just to understand what it is to withdraw mm-hmm which is a big part of the movie because it's hard if you're not a drug addict or a smoker, you know, to actually stop something for 30 days to fast, as you talked about, to it's, it's really tricky. And here were three things that were seemingly not hard to do. And it was funny to, you know, run and see my actors at day 24 and 25 <laughs> wanting to kill me, you know, <laughs> hence the month of and, fear. Yeah. And I have another friend, my, my best buddy who actually on day 29 ended up proposing to a woman, which I was like, you never propose on day 29. What are you out of your freaking mind? <laughs> the month of fury. The month of fury, we called it. So if I ever did a self-help, that would be, uh, you know, hey, if you want to co-write it and start a movement, I know you, I know you the got the month sales. of fury. All right. You, you heard here first folks. Um, I, I could, I could get, I think quite a few people to participate in the month yeah. of fury. It's actually very effective. I'd love to ask quite a few questions about the new film. Uh, but the first is related to the writing of the film. Mm. So when you are writing a film like Mother, and there are many, and I don't want to give anything away, but many visual components, how do you write that type of material? Being the writer and then the director, 
I can sort of um, not worry about that that much. But there are two different steps. Uh, I think first you're writing and you're following along the emotional truth of the characters and following scene by scene what's going on and watching the story unfold. And then there's the next stage at a certain point, you kind of hang up most of your writing cap because you can always rewrite if you're the writer, but then you start to become the director and start to think about blocking and movement. And that was a very, very big deal in this film. Can you define blocking just for people who don't know? Blocking, yeah, sure. Blocking is basically just how actors move in a scene. That's all it is. But it's really, truly um, a big part of the work because for a lot of reasons. Um, First, you want to create blocking that's organic and natural to what the actors are doing in the scene. So you want to make sure whatever the actor's doing makes sense with what their objective is in the scene or what they're doing in the scene or what they're not doing in the scene or what they're hiding in the scene. So you kind of want to think about what the, what that is all about. Then there's a second tier, which is as the filmmaker, you're trying to make it as economical as possible, meaning as few setups, as few times to move the camera as possible, because every time you have to sort of change where the camera is, you have to change the lighting, and that just takes time, and you want to get as much time shooting as possible. So you're trying to figure out blocking that works best for the simplest amount of technical problems, unless you really trying to do something technically super challenging stuff so you try to balance those and you know and it's kind of a balance because sometimes you'll tell the actor oh can you help me out here with blocking because it means we have to do less but sometimes you don't want to get in their way and you want them to be creatively free so you want to give them an open playground to play around in where they can do and move so it's all it's 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 a balancing act um but but it's a big part of it so at a certain point you know when the script is done and in the case of mother i was actually lucky enough to have a three and a half month rehearsal period where basically um i convinced jennifer lawrence and javier bardem and michelle pfeiffer and ed harris to join me in a warehouse out in east brooklyn where we basically taped out the set and got we would work on the scenes and then we'd get up on our feet and we would just start to block them and then in the last two weeks of that three and a half month long process, I actually brought in my cameraman and we shot the entire movie, moving the camera on, on video as kind of homework. And then, which was really fascinating because you figure out all different types of problems like, oh, how's the camera going to get from, it's, it's a constant moving handheld camera. So how am I going to get the camera from here to there? Because there's a wall there. <laughs> Um, and, and that's, that suddenly started to play into action. And for this film, it was a very, very restricted visual language. That was part of the, one of the challenges I put in front of myself. Normally you'll have a wide shot in a movie. And the nice thing about a wide shot is if an actor somehow does something that's not, that's like dramatically new, emotionally new, or if they decide to comb their hair a different way in each take if you go out to a wide shot the basically the the illusion is broken for a moment because the viewer's eyes have to take in more or different part of a scene or there's other things to look at so that when you pop back into a close-up you can get away cheat almost what's happening and no one would ever notice in the case of my film since there was no wide shots it was extremely challenging. I mean, the only shots in the film are either over Jennifer Lawrence's shoulder, on Jennifer Lawrence's face, or her point of view, which means what she's looking at. That's the only coverage in the entire film. 
So that's why this edit has been, you know, almost a year long cut because I had such a limited amount of language to work with and I had to make every moment by moment by moment work, even though that's not really happening in real time. Why did you choose to use that constraint? I find, I feel like I could talk to you about constraints and yeah, rules huge. for a really long time. Yeah. Because you mentioned- the Fury. <laughs> yeah, the month of Fury. Yeah, exactly. Just get progressively more belligerent. <laughs> yeah. And you talked about, say, having lunch scheduled for after the difficult meeting. You yeah. talked about, and then you have, say, shooting over Max's shoulder. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And different ways of- as you put it, sort of limiting your yeah, visual well, palette. Why, why do that? Well, I think, I think coming out, starting as an independent filmmaker with very limited resources uh, makes you be very, very, you know, try, you strategically have to figure out economical means to basically take advantage of all the limited resources you have. So I ended up actually stylistically creating techniques that actually are, turn those limited economics into a stylistic choice. So I've always been preaching that boundaries are the most important thing in any form of an art. You know, I mean, when you're a painter, you have the boundaries of a canvas and the limitation of your, of your colors. Um, and I think it's extremely important to do the same in filmmaking uh, and, and, and to make real choices about how you want to do those limits. Sometimes they're self-imposed. I have less of the economic issues, although always you, you have to be very economically responsible for it, for what you're doing. But I went really extreme on this film, which was like I basically said there's three shots for every scene, which is an incredibly low amount of shots that I would normally do um, in a movie. And it, it just became an interesting exercise, an experiment. You know, and there were times when Maddie, my DP, was like, "Don't you want to?" You know, like. Never does a character come between Jennifer and the camera. Yeah. No one ever crosses the lens. No, I noticed that. Yeah. Which is crazy because when we're doing crowd scenes with lots of people, you know, it would be a lot easier to tell the story by having Jen get lost in the crowd and crowd come through. But no, I was like, and my DP, Maddie was like, why, why we, it could be. And we talked about it for a while. And, and, uh, and I was like, no, I think let's just remain orthodox here. Let's remain truthful to the intent and the one thing i was worried about people would feel claustrophobic or you know bored by the style and that doesn't seem to be the response people aren't seeing those limitations and i think that's because we just turned it into a language and into a style that people can understand is there something you hope audiences will respond with or walk out with did you have an objective and this ties into i suppose the, the genesis of the film as well. I don't actually know the origin story. Well, the origin story is hard because it's murky. I think it came out of these endless headlines, the endless stream of notifications on your telephone, the ability to scratch right beneath the surface of our kind of civilization and realize how many desperate and awful things are happening around the planet still in this, you know, pretty enlightened time. And there's a lot of rage and a lot of helplessness because like, what can I do? How, how can I stop this? And, you know, being an environmentalist when we're completely under assault, when, you know, what science is telling us is going on and the same people that use their smartphone 
every second and every minute of the day of the people who say, well, science isn't always right, yet this the product of science is in their pocket, <laughs> you know, dominating their lives, yet refusing to see what's going on. Like, how could you not say, wow, there might be some connection going on? And I don't know, I come from a science background and I, 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 I witnessed how little tiny small changes by man can deeply have huge effects very quickly that are out of control. You know, and then this new idea of these feedback loops, which isn't that new anymore, but these ideas that are becoming more idea that there's these tipping points where things are just going to start to accelerate, you know, and as a parent, I just sit there and I go, oh my gosh, you know, I look at the beauty of my child and want them forget about having a job, having a freaking atmosphere and having the ability to, I mean, it's just crazy to ever think, you know, he'll see a, a really a, an elephant in the wild and in any type of wilderness way. I mean, I, I, for the first, I guess, I guess Prince William Sound was very much wilderness when I was a kid and, and, and something happened to me when I was in Prince William Sound. That was, I had a, um, we were kayaking, as I said, for weeks and I was eating a granola bar and the wrapper fell into the water. It was like a foil wrapper. And I freaked out. I like stopped. I tried to, it just went right under. And because of that guilt of that, I still, when I see trash on a beach, I pick it up for that foil. You know, it's like that, that guilt has carried me. And I, because at that time it very much felt untouched. Like I was the one of the first humans to ever experience it. There isn't a place on the planet anymore not because of pollution only, but because of climate change that isn't affected by humans. There is nowhere on the planet that is true wilderness as it was 60 years ago. You know, when I was, I was writing a Western and I realized, you know, it was said in 1883, I think, if every single person on the planet disappeared, dropped dead, was abducted or whatever at that point in time, besides some forged metals, belt buckles, horseshoes, bullets, guns, Everything, every remnant of humanity would be gone in a century, you know, well, completely gone because it was, everything was built out of earth materials. And then you suddenly have all these freakish new materials where every single bag of Lay's potato chip you have is something that's around for 10,000 years longer, particles that are part of us and you can't escape it. And so quickly from my childhood where there still was places on the planet that weren't really feeling any impact to now where the it's all changed. It's, it's scary that people are just completely denying it and turning their backs on it. And out of that, just, you know, I just want to howl. It's like, you know, I felt the Ginsburg howl and I just wanted to howl. And I guess it's my howl. What is the Ginsburg Howl? Alan Ginsburg's oh. uh, the poem Howl. Ah, oh, got it. All right, sorry, I'm you never read that one. Betraying my lack of education. You know, oh, that one you should read. Okay. That one's great. All right. Yeah. yeah, I mean, but it's basically you know it was a cry from the '60s, you know, of like what of, for his generation, or at least that's the way I took it. How would you like people to go into the movie, and who should go see the movie? Like now, <laughs> the, now the obvious commercial answer might be every, everyone. Everyone. Yeah. Well, I, I think, look, I think you got to know you're going into a roller coaster ride and it's like, you know, when you get to the amusement park and you see that loop the loop and you're like, no freaking way, you should prop, you, you should be ready for it. <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, I, and, and no matter how much I prep you and Tim can tell you, it goes there. So, right. I yes. mean, it's, yes, it's, it it's intense and it's very though, intense. <laughs> so if you want an intense, different ride, if you're, you know, 
want to see something different at the at the cinema you know please come on down um i i think i think it's i you know that's what we tried to do was make make a very unique roller coaster except you know it may go off the tracks and into the concrete wall but i can't really be i don't want to be responsible for that but that's what <laughs> happens but i i mean i i just want i think it works on a lot of levels um i was always like thinking it was going to be really scary and and you know tilting into the horror genre you know jen lawrence when she saw it actually thought it was incredibly beautiful and moving that there was a beauty to it and and then and i've heard that reflected in a lot of ways and so it's definitely not your normal night at the movie it's it's but it's the type of movie that you go see and and everyone will have something to say about it i think um and hopefully they're not too many profane words directed in my direction <laughs> Well, it could be profane, but modifying something good also. Yeah. <laughs> There's that. Yeah. I'd like to ask about the sound. Yeah. So I I have read that, well, a few things. That A, a lot of independent films or films in general fail from poor audio yeah. quality. That was a big thing I realized very young in my career was like, this is a pretty good movie, but something's off. Mm -hmm. And it was always the sound. And the sound in this movie, and in a, and I mean in in more than one of your films certainly, yeah. is uh, very. I'm searching for the right words, but very visceral, very pronounced. Mm. And uh, I I only read this other expression after the fact after I saw the movie, but that think thinking of music or the sound as a, as a, an additional character. Yeah. Could you elaborate on that? Because I've 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 never paid so much attention yeah. to sound in a film. I think it's uh, well, you you saw a slightly unfinished. Uh, only the first half of the film was kind of really dialed in, so it's going to get better. I hope that's what we're supposed to be doing as we speak. You know, sound design for me is a huge tool, and I got totally turned on when I was a a, a young kid. I saw a documentary on the guys who did the sound design for Star Wars, and they were out in the desert banging on wires, making lightsaber sounds, and it, it blew my mind. I was like, oh wow, you know, that's such a cool idea that you can use any sound to do this and matching up sound and image, you can really mess around. So I've always been fascinated by that. Um, but, you know, since I mo make these films where I really am trying to make the audience have a visceral experience with the character, in this case, Jennifer Lawrence's character, I try to draw the audience into her subjective point of view by, you know, creating a soundscape that starts off realistic, but then as things sort of shift and get more and more insane becomes more and more expressive and expressionistic. I love the fact that people are going to be able to see this in theaters for a lot of reasons. And I want to connect this to something else that I read about you, which uh, relates to the historical lack of compliance to widget making. <laughs> uh, so the story of you shooting Natalie Portman for Black Swan in the subway yeah. at something like three in the morning without necessary permits, without her having signed a contract. Yeah. How do you, and I don't know nearly as many filmmakers as you do, but I know a few. Yeah. How do you get away with it? I mean, you, meaning like yeah. you seem to be able, and this is from the outside looking in, yeah. but to make the art you want to make and bend the rules or do things like that 
Why is that? Are there certain sort of contractual decisions or conversations you've had that allow you to do it? Did you set the precedent as like a problem child early? So that's, they're just like, ah, oh, it's fucking Darren. So you get away with it. I mean, it's just the project. I, I, I don't think, you know, it's never meant to be abusive. I mean, no, some, no, sometimes, no, 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 but I'm just saying that I think that's the, the, the reality is it's, it's not abusive. It's about the work. It's always about the work. And I think if you can relay back to that, that it, this is about, you know, us bringing this to life in the best way. And I think, you know, I, there are people that would take that line of argument and turn it into abuse or, or push the line to something that's not safe or fair. And I think I'm pretty empathetic to other people's feelings, maybe to a fault, because I think some directors may, it's kind of helpful sometimes to push past some of that pain and be blind to it. But that's never, that's just not my character. I can't do it. I, I, I feel when people are uncomfortable very easily. And it makes me probably better as a director to read performance, but it probably gets me less than what I always need because I feel sorry sometimes. I, ha I have mercy, <laughs> I guess. And how dare you? So, yeah. But, but, you know, I think though that, you know, when it's the work, you, you just, you go for it and people get excited by that. And if you're actually being truthful about that, it's okay. But there are times and places where I've tried to do too much and people have pointed out to me, hey, that's probably, you know, it's not fair for these reasons. And I hear that. And, and then I just listen to myself if that's the truth or not. If, you have that conversation and it doesn't feel true to you. Is that the, is that one of the primary causes of walking from potential projects or like what? And I guess all of this is sort of coalescing into a question of if you were talking to a very promising new director, let's say director, maybe yeah. they're a writer director, but they direct yeah. and you wanted to prevent them from getting chewed up or corrupted by the system is there any particular career advice that you would give to them it's a good question i mean i mean you know just you got to be doing it i i'm always from the school you got to do it because you have to do it but you don't have any other choice but to do it just recently i ran into a filmmaker and he was sort of complaining and whining about doing a tv show because you really wanted to be making films and that the, and then but you know what my advice to him was not just stick with your gut and do what you want i could tell he was the type of guy that should be doing that tv show because i could see like he was he was already past that point where he had crossed and he was just gonna so i was like do it but i but then you find people who just you know want to do what they do and, you know, and then you just want to support them and give them as much love and support to, to get it because they're trying their hardest to do something that only they can do. Now, it, does that mean, for instance, I've heard this advice with writing, uh, that you know, writing, you should only write, say a book if it's easier for you to write the book than to not write the book. Like it has to be that much of a kind of compulsion. I don't think it's ever easier to make a movie than not make a movie. <laughs> yeah. well, I, I guess yeah. maybe just sort of from a personal right. pain pleasure standpoint. Like I remember right. reading an anecdote and I don't like, again, who knows? It's the internet, yeah. but about you, I, I actually think this might've been from the New Yorker, uh, about a diary entry where you were talking about a rave in Thailand and you were like, the sun came up <laughs> and the people were dancing and, and the sun came down and the people were dancing and yeah. 
the tides went out and I was miserable because I wasn't making movies. Yeah, that's true. That means you have to make movies, right? I mean, it yeah, seems... Yeah, I mean, I guess so. I mean, I think for me it was storytelling more than films. Although I think there were definitely things in my past and experience that, you know, helped me. Like very early on, I got into photography, into black and white photography when I was in junior high school. And I would, you know, go into the uh, dark room and develop the film. I loved it. And I don't know why that fell into my lap. It just so happened they had this lab nearby and I was able to take a class there. And then I just started thinking about photographs and taking pictures and all that. So, and that all led to this. Um, but I think it could have gone anyway. I, I, it's funny because when I was in college, I didn't know what I wanted to do the first couple of years I was in college. I, I hadn't discovered filmmaking until I was a junior in college. And um, and I remember walking around, hitting myself in the head going, oh, I'm never going to find what I want. I'm never going to find my calling, you know. And then it happens for you, hopefully. And it happened for me. I found something that I, it was the first time I ever got an A in college was filmmaking. And I was a B minus student until film came along and suddenly, boom, it was like something that kept me out of my girlfriend's room. You know, I was like, <laughs> I'd rather be, rather be cutting the movie than laying in bed. So I was like, um, you know, I found it, but, uh, I think eventually it comes and, but it could have been a lot of things. I think, I don't think necessarily like, I mean, it's this weird kind of weird art form and it could have probably come to me in lots of different ways. It was just something that I was like, okay, I see a path. I see something there and it's interesting and fascinating and there's a lot to learn in there. And so I just went for it. If I were to ask, say some of your closest friends, what your superpower is. Maybe you wouldn't talk about it because you seem to be a pretty understated, humble guy, but what your superpower is or what makes you different? What would they say? Uh, or what might they say? Well, <laughs> I mean, my friend Dan is like, who do, does visual effects for me. It was, I met him first day of freshman year of college says, you know, when people ask me if I, you changed, I say, you know what? He was an asshole in college and he's still an asshole. But <laughs> that's my friend telling me that. That's what old friends are for. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. I, I don't know. It, it, it's hard. It's hard for me to say. But definitely one of the best things about my life, is, uh, as I talked about there, is I, I still hang out with the guys I went to nursery school. I still hang out with the guys I went to high school with. I still hang out with the guys I went to college with. And um, I think that that having the roots, uh, like I'm into roots, I'm into loyalty, and I think that's pro. And I work with the same filmmakers pretty much. And I think, I don't know. I had a, my friend Jed once said, that "The the guy who dies with the most friends wins." I thought that was pretty good advice. If I were to pester your friends a little bit more, <laughs> give them a few drinks, yeah, and they get past the obligatory, he's still an asshole. He's always been an <laughs> asshole. If they if they got to like the 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 point of drunk reminiscing yeah and sort of a, the emotional point of drunkenness yeah what would they attribute your success to a lot of a lot of, I mean more people don't make it than make it yeah in the film business Whew, it's a good question well, um, what would you attribute it to we could make it direct to I mean it's a combination I mean I had I had excellent parents that you know almost always supported me and always told me that not to work so hard, not to work too hard. You know, when I would say, I got to go work, they'd say, well, don't work too hard. was their saying. I, I, I mean, that was after I got out of college. 
<laughs> so up to college, they put they were both school teachers, and a- academics was super important. But they also created a lot of um, they created very good responsibility and boundaries, but also um, didn't necessarily create opportunities, but gave me breathing room with support to find opportunities. So I struggled in my twenties, but I was able to struggle in my twenties. Um, and so that, that was, that was, I think a big part was having that type of, um, support system and my sister. So family was a major part of it. And I think that allowed me to have persistence, Mm -hmm. you know, um, which I always say is nine tenths of the game is persistence is, you know, you got to get up to the plate you know, to get that chance to take that swing. Uh, and to get to the plate just takes a lot of work. Um, but then, and then when you get there, it's preparation and homework, having done all your homework and, um, as well as you can, as much as you can. And then, and then as you're taking the swing is make it a responsible swing for the team, you know, Make sure that that I, I love the baseball metaphor. I wonder how much longer I keep going. <laughs> With your students, you teach. What is the name of the class? I don't. I mean, I I don't do it regularly because I haven't found the best place. I, I taught at NYU for a bit and um, a few other places, but I mean, I just I, I just to be honest, I kind of wing it to see what kids are doing. You know, I'll come in. I'll I'll talk to them about what their dreams are, what their projects are. I'll ask, they all sort of share. So I have them all describe each other's stuff. But I, I love doing scene study with kids where I have them put up a scene and bring work with actors, put up a scene. Now this is a, this is a scene that has already appeared. In no, the- no, 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 no. A scene from their projects. Mm-hmm. They describe it to me. They tell me what they want. They'll put up the scene and then I'll, I'll teach them. I'll give them my, my direction on how I would block it. I'll work with the actors. I'll just show them my process and then I'll take a chalkboard out and I'll show them let's ha- how, would, how do we shoot it? And I'll just draw my designs to show them how to draw it. So I and, give them a And the chalkboard sense. is sort of bird's eye view. It's always bird eye view. That's how I've always, I, I came up, I mean, I, I know the filmmakers do it, but it was when I was 20 years old starting to do films. That's how I started. I always, and it's probably from playing Dungeons and Dragons as a kid is like, you know, you got that sky view and like i drew little triangles and i came up with all these different shapes and forms i have my own like language that i've developed over the years for how to do it and i have the ability to look at that architectural plans and then to see it in 3d below so i can that's how i do it i do it very much from a bird eye view dungeons and dragons will be for round two (laughs) i was i was always a chaotic good Cleric. Gray, you were a cleric. I was gray elf. I was <laughs> oh, a, you were a gray elf. Yeah, you were a cleric. No, no, I, I, I don't remember that well. Actually, I mean, we played for ever. Yeah, but I, I don't actually remember my character. I'll, I'll bring some graph paper next time. <laughs> exactly. Uh, if you were to, this is related to the class. Let's just say you could no longer make films. Yeah. All right, and your sort of divinely assigned mission was to coach five, five to yeah. ten filmmakers. Yeah, and. Not only would you get the psychic reward of seeing them do well, but much like, say, someone who bankrolls a poker player, yeah. you would get a percentage of the future. What are the things you would focus on if you had, say, a six-month period? Well, I mean, if I was doing that and I had a share of it? Yeah. I mean, that, as soon as you bring the share into it, it's like, uh, All right, so, you know. so now we, we, could, we, could, we, could, we could approach this a couple different ways. So one is... You get the profit share, right? So it's like a 50-50 split with them, plus you have a kicker, but you have to add some money in. All right, we could do that. (laughs) 
I would never a, do that. Okay. I, I, I'm or, not, I, it, I, this fil- is this film is, investment's an awful investment. This is, of course, <laughs> that's what we have huge Chinese companies for. But the uh, the other could be really whatever reward you would want to get out of it. So it could be the acclaim and receiving awards and prizes and so on. It could be anything else. But- I mean, really, I mean the the real. I guess the I mean the gift of any teacher is to see uh, whatever the goals of the student are, as long as they're righteous goals be achieved, you know? So, you know, I would probably want to teach students that were, you know, probably had just wanted to tell good stories. And then I would want them to see them make them as well as they could, and then have them connect with as many people as they could. The awards, the money, that's all silly stuff. I mean, it's great for everything, but it's really has as many issues with it as good things. So, um, I mean, it's, it's just, you want to find people and I'd want to find students that really just want to tell stories and entertain. And they, not that they want to be a filmmaker because we're the, um, rock star of the present day or the NBA basketball player of the day, you know, where it's because that's what they want to do. Like when I started telling stories, it wasn't like when I was a kid, no one knew what Spielberg did. We heard the name Lucas and Spielberg, but that was it, you know, but not really, you know, no one, how do you become a director? And when I started to do it, even in the early nineties, it wasn't really, it was early Sundance days. It wasn't really this track record of how to do it. So I wasn't like looking for the reason to be, you know, that it could lead to something that was clear. It was just something that was interesting and fascinating to me. So at this point, when there are all these paths to, you know, um, fame and money and all that, and, you know, if you make one film, you can go and do a Marvel movie or something like that, which is happening all the time now. I think you want to find people that are looking to tell stories and then help them tell stories. And like when I, the last class I taught at NYU, my best student was a, Turkish kid who was going back to Turkey to tell a small story about an apple tree on the on the, on the side of Mount Ararat that starts a village fight and tiny story it could be huge who knows but he was serious and he just wanted to tell that story and so I gravitated to him and I spent most of my time in the class working with him to help him because he was the guy who was going to go make a movie and was serious and knew what he was doing and I said let me focus on this kid so the other kids can see be inspired by his path any top scripts if somebody has never read a screenplay and you're like look just start start with abc i mean the guys working today eric roth scott silver read any of their scripts that great writers um chris terrio i mean there's a lot of great writers working right now i mean there's so, there, there's a lot of good great scripts that i've read i mean charlie kaufman's scripts are great and fun to read it's enough to start with. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> where can people find the film? Where should they learn more about it? I've never had something produced. Yes, exactly. Oh. And I've had, just for everybody listening, I, I highly recommend you check it out. Like <laughs> like Darren said, like, no, you're signing up for a yeah. roller coaster. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, but I've had nothing produce this really unique I'll get yelled at for modifying unique by someone I know, but that's okay. I'm going to just for him, very unique, uh, dreamlike state for 
about 18 hours afterwards. It was, was amazing. Yeah, it was really profound. But where can people learn more about it? Well, I mean, it's mother with a lowercase m and an exclamation point, which causes all different type of difficulties with social media because of the exclamation point. But um, I mean, by the time this comes out, I hope uh, it's going to be around. Um, if not, um, you know, um, the, I mean, just Google mother movie and you'll, you'll be seeing a bunch about it, about it. I hope. Where can people, if they want to check you out on social media or website ah, or anything the, else, um, how can they both say hi? My full name, Darren Aronofsky at on Instagram and uh, Twitter. Yeah, that's I, I, you know, Instagram is pretty cool. I've been doing this cool thing. I don't know if you've been following it, but I, I found two young film students and they were moving out to go to film school in LA and I rented them a big projector and a cube truck and they've been driving through the country projecting the word mother in different languages onto all different types of structures around the country. And so I've been posting these, Im these beautiful images that these young filmmakers have been making, um, to help self-promote my film, but also, um, it's, it's been a fun project to learn about all these different places all over America. It's kind of humans of New York. Uh, is that humans of, sure. is that the name of the, yeah, the humans thing? of New York, humans of New York, but, um, more projections of mother. <laughs> <laughs> Very cool. So people can say hi to you on the interwebs Absolutely. and check it out. Yeah. Uh, any last, uh, asks or recommendations of the people listening besides seeing the movie? I mean, just, keep uh keep seeing the weird stuff go out and you know let you know support when you and, and then spread the word you know so i think you know if you dig the movie get it out there and get everyone to go see it I, I, i'm hoping that it's the type of film that you'll want to talk to other people about well i will i can attest certainly with <laughs> two people i saw with, we talked about for hours afterwards so it, one of the things i really enjoyed is that it does not follow the typical template any typical template yeah. that i can that i can see so it leads to a lot of conversation dare to be different dare to be different yeah uh well darren i really appreciate the time thank uh, you this, tim this it's been amazing been, yeah this has been really fun we we can we can keep going but i want to let you get back to next film yeah <laughs> next <laughs> film and polishing up everything yes. and uh, to everybody listening you can find links to everything we've discussed including the movie books and so on in the show notes at tim.blog forward slash podcast as per usual in every other episode and until next time thank you for listening bye bye hey guys this is tim again just a few more things before you take off number one this is five bullet friday do you want to get a short email from me would you enjoy getting a short email from me every friday that provides a little morsel of fun before the weekend and five bullet friday is a very short email where i share the coolest things I've found or that I've been pondering over the week. That could include favorite new albums that I've discovered. It could include gizmos and gadgets and all sorts of weird shit that I've somehow dug up in the uh, the world of the esoteric as I do. It could include favorite articles that I've read and that I've shared with my close friends, for instance. And it's very short. It's just a little tiny bite of goodness before you head off for the weekend. So if you want to receive that, check it out. Just go to fourhourworkweek.com. That's fourhourworkweek.com all spelled out and just drop in your email and you will get the very next one. And if you sign up, I hope you enjoy it.
This episode is brought to you by Audible, which I've used for many, many years. I absolutely love audiobooks, and they are one of my favorite ways to pass the time when I travel. I'm on the road all the time, and Audible allows me to consume many more books than I possibly could otherwise. I have two audiobooks to recommend right off the bat. The first is perhaps my favorite audiobook of all time, and it's the only audiobook I've wanted to listen to twice in a row. The Graveyard Book by Neil Gaiman. It's amazing, and you will thank me. There are a few different versions. I like the version that Neil narrates himself. One of the most soothing voices of all time. The second book is Vagabonding by Rolf Potts, P-O-T-T-S, which had a huge impact on my life and formed the basis for a lot of what would later become the four-hour work week. So go to audible.com forward slash Tim and you can choose one of these two books or any of many, many other options. That could be books, magazines, and much more. As a listener of The Tim Ferriss Show, you can also access a free 30-day trial. Just go to audible.com forward slash Tim. You can't make more time, but you can make the most of it. So turn your travel or your commute into something more with a free trial at Audible. Go to audible.com forward slash Tim to start now and get your free 30-day trial. This episode is brought to you by WordPress, my go-to platform for blogging, writing online, creating websites, everything. I love WordPress to bits. Uh, My site, every site just about that I have is run on WordPress and the lead developer of WordPress, Matt Mullenweg, has appeared on this podcast many times. The very first episode in particular is amazing. The second I took a ton of notes on, so you should check it out. But WordPress, where do I even begin? I mean, The New Yorker uses it, Jay-Z, Beyonce, they use it, 538, TechCrunch, TED, CNN, Time. Whether you are looking to create a personal blog, a business site, both, neither, something else, you'll make a huge impact when you build your website on WordPress.com. And directly from some friends at Google, I'm not going to quote them by name, but they say that WordPress offers the best out-of-the-box SEO, that's search engine optimization imaginable. So if you're on WordPress, you immediately have a leg up on everybody else on search engines and so forth. In my experience, I'm no medical doctor of search engine optimization, but I, I will say that I used WordPress for years and fell in love with it to the extent that I became very close friends with Matt and then uh, became an investor uh, slash advisor to Automatic, which runs WordPress.com. That is how much I believe in this, and that's how a lot of my most successful products and investments have come about, because I'm in love with X, and then I seek out X. Nearly 30% of the internet is run on WordPress, and that includes everything from the huge sites that I mentioned to neighborhood sites, and it is super easy to get started. There's no need to worry about security or upgrades or hosting. They offer 24-7 support and handle all of that, which allows you to focus on creating the highest quality content that you can with the least amount of friction. I don't want to have to worry about downtime. I don't want to have to worry about getting emergency emails if I'm on vacation or something like that. And WordPress is my go-to solution for all of this. I trust all of my most important text on the internet to WordPress. And they can't buy that with a sponsorship. They can't buy that with anything. I want uptime, 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 and quality. And that is what I have selected after everything that I've looked at. So check it out. Go to WordPress. That's W-O-R-D-P-R-E-S-S dot com. WordPress.com forward slash Tim. 
to receive 15% off of your website today. That's wordpress.com forward slash Tim.